0: You're listening to Blind Entrepreneurship, an interview series podcast that highlights the stories of the top business professionals around the world. In each episode, we explore how entrepreneurs overcame blindness in business in order to execute their vision. podcast is brought to you by Penji. I am your host Jonathan Grzybowski and today we have Jeff Gibbard on the show. For years his LinkedIn headline read, world's most handsome social media and content marketing strategist. But today he prefers to go buy another title and that's Superhero. Jeff Gilbert is the founder of the Superhero Institute, a training and development company that shows people how to be super and human at work and in life. Using a combination of his proprietary superhuman framework and the X-Factors, Jeff reveals the inner workings and simple strategies that unlock heroic potential of leadership, communication, strategy, and enduring growth. Jeff took a hard pivot in 2019 after more than a decade of work in the social media industry and is now on a mission to help rehumanize the online world, inspire the next wave of extraordinary leaders, and give every human being access to the tools and trainings that they need to be more strategic, thoughtful, and effective. He's a dynamic keynote speaker and expert strategist and the host of a popular podcast, Shareable, and forthcoming podcast, Rogue. During the conversation, you'll see and hear a lot about the influences of superheroes, so we definitely dive in deep into that. Uh, Great, great conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Let's get right to it. Today's episode is sponsored by Penji. Are you in charge of marketing for your business and need graphic design support? Let Penji design anything you need for your business, from a logo to your marketing materials, sales sheets, social media content, and so much more. Penji helps you achieve more with unlimited graphic design support, daily output, and a dedicated project manager, all at one flat monthly rate. We have an exclusive offer to the blind entrepreneur community. Head over to penji.co and use the coupon code BLIND for 15% off your first month. Again, that's penji.co, P-E-N-J-I.co, and use the coupon code BLIND for 15% off your first month of penji. And now, let's get to today's episode. Jeff, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, thanks for having
2: me. Oh, absolutely, man. So I was doing some research and I've seen some similarities. Is it true that the similarities between you and Tony Stark are practically identical?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've often been mistaken for the uh, the amazing and incredible Tony Stark. Um, we have very similar personalities. I may or may not have a fleet of mechanical suits in my basement. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's yeah awesome. I'm, I'm a big fan of uh you know all of the avengers and all of the the comic book worlds that are yeah great. i
2: i saw some some spider-man stuff i saw some travels throughout um i believe uh, some foreign country um where you experience like a whole avengers thing that seemed pretty cool
1: oh uh, yeah well, my wife and i went to um to hong kong and it was right as Endgame was coming out so there mm. were just there was so much hype around the movie obviously but they had these full-size statues of um, all of the different Avengers. So I just geeked out like crazy. And and it's funny because when we went on our honeymoon to Tokyo, we came across outside of a restaurant in Kobe, there was just a Spider-Man sitting there. So I have all of these photos of me all over the world in my travels where I'm just like posing with
2: superheroes. That's awesome. That's really cool. And is Iron Man or Spider-Man like your top? Or, or were you like a big comic book person? Or did you more so get into it after the like once the movies were started and stuff?
1: Yeah. So like when I was a kid, I was very much into the DC universe. I was like a Superman, Batman kind of kid. And because I mean, I'm a kid, I don't know much at that point. And the Superman movies came out in my childhood uh, with Christopher Reeves. And then I kind of fell out of it for a while because during, you know, my youth comic bookery was very, it was very nerdy at that time. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like Mm -hmm. a cool nerdy. It was the like, outcast nerdy mm-hmm. uh, at least that's how i perceived it and how it felt um and then when the first spider-man movie came out with toby Maguire, um it was really impactful for me for a variety of different reasons i was into photography i was scared of spiders at the time so there were all of these different reasons why like the movie like really resonated with me and from that point forward i just went all in on the superhero thing um you know the whole um with great power there must also come great responsibility sort of thing just it really just clicked for me and uh, it was from that point that, like, I, one, I was into any superhero movie that came out. I've seen all of them, even the terrible ones, like the Ben Affleck Daredevil. <laughs> um, but I also started getting into comics. Specifically, I was really interested in the, like, the OG comics, like Silver Age and Bronze Age type comics. So I started actually uh, my my first comic books that I remember really reading was I actually started reading the first, the first Spider Man through like like 250 or something like that. So I read like the first 250 Spider Man comics. And that was like that's
2: my jam. That's awesome. That's really cool. Yeah, I'm I'm very similar path I'd say in 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 the world of comic books. That, but I actually would lean on the side of the outcast nerdy dude that actually read comics at an early age. So
1: right on. Well, <laughs> well I, I admire that. I wish that I had uh, had the. Um, I guess the foresight in, in my early years to realize, like, I could just, I could do whatever I want and be interested in whatever I want to be interested in and not have to live up to anyone's expectations. Um, because you know, the more I learn about superheroes and the more I read about them, the more inspired I become that, you know, they're really a, a beacon that we should be looking to, to incorporate into various aspects of our lives.
2: Well, I think that actually is a perfect segue. You, you mentioned the word expectations and when it comes to the world of social media, for example, I feel like our expectations as, uh, human beings are, we're expected to have this perfect, beautiful, of content driven Instagram, um, you know, beautiful life. And that's not always the case. And so my question is, what is social media doing to us?
1: It's such an interesting, it's such a big question because I've been thinking about it now for 12 years because when, when I, when it first kind of came out, like when it was a thing that started to become popular, which I'll say, you know, for me, it was like circa 2007 to 2010 was kind of the the birth of social media on a, a more, um, you know, widely accepted sort of um, level. And at that time, you know, I didn't think that we were going to be putting out only the highlights of our life. I really thought that social media was going to give us the opportunity to actually show the real parts of our life. It was going to give us the opportunity to really show each other the human side of one another, that we'd be able to be vulnerable, that we'd be able to connect with one another, to talk about important issues in this kind of, um, you know, safe virtual space. I really, you know, I believed very much that it was going to change the world for the better. And, you know, after a decade, more than a decade in this business, I've just watched as that dream has slowly withered away for me. And I realized that what started to happen, and, and I, to a certain extent, I blame businesses and I blame marketers. Um, mm-hmm. You know, When I got into it, I was very much rah-rah about how we can use these technologies for good, even within business. You know, Businesses had this opportunity to do uh, amazing things by listening to their customers, like amazing idea, just revolutionary, right? And then at the same time, understand that the power that their employees now had to shape the narrative around what this brand is all about, and they would just change their behavior. I thought it was going to be like a wake-up call. turns out it wasn't. And instead, they looked at it as, you know, if we just funnel enough money and energy into this, we can just clog up the pipes with all of our marketing messages, we can, you know, show all the best stuff about us, never, you know, and and, uh, gloss over or bury all the negative stuff about us. And then you have personal brands coming out people becoming quote unquote influencers and mm-hmm. developing their own network by you know showing this glossed over you know made up version of themselves and um, and it really was virtually the antithesis of everything I believe that it was supposed to be um, so what it's doing to us now I think is it's somewhat like the reality TV show effect I think that it's given everybody this um, desire to be famous and not necessarily be famous for something but just to be famous for famous sake Mm -hmm. and um the way that that's leaching out into the culture at large you know forget about what it's doing to us in our businesses if you just look at what it's doing to us out in the world and in our lives um you know the when you're sitting behind a keyboard it becomes very easy to dehumanize someone and fight with them because you disagree about you know the same politics. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that that method of behaving that we have adopted online of this being nasty to one another, because we don't have to see the actual impact on the other person's face. We don't have to consider who they are. We just see them as a caricature, not a human. Um, I think that that's leaching out into the actual world. I think we're seeing more and more people that feel emboldened to be nasty and terrible out in the real world and take their pain and anger and anguish out on other people. So you know, I, I feel as though the impact of social media has been more bad than good. I, I don't wanna say that there's no good. There's a lot of great that has come from them, part of a number of groups and connected with a lot of people I wouldn't have met otherwise weren't for, for social media, but the overall net impact, I think, has been very negative on the culture and very negative for businesses as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, do you have a solution to, to the problem? Because like, I, my, my initial reaction to what you're saying is like, well, I think there's a lot of beauty in, in the negative or there's a lot of beauty in the journey. Whereas if you're posting pictures with yourself of, with the Lamborghini all the time, You know, that's that's not your everyday life. It very much so can be, but it it more often than not. And so, but to the caveat is people if you're following a story, do you actually want to see that versus do you always want to just see the Lamborghini because it's taking you away from you, potentially like a sad life that you already live?
1: You know, I think escapism is one aspect of it. I mean we do you know, consistently turn to our phones to pass the time and to not feel so lonely and mm-hmm. consequently wind up feeling more lonely. But I, I think it's a twofold problem, right? On the one hand, you have, um, you know, the people who are participating. And, and I want to just put that to, a si- to the side for a minute. And, and let's, I'm not giving people a pass, but I want to talk about the other piece of it, which is that the platforms themselves have an enormous impact on how we wind up behaving. Right? So there was a time that I remember from call it like 2009 to 2013, where everyone was obsessed with the Facebook edge rank algorithm, how to beat mm-hmm. the algorithm, how to, cause that's when they started making it known that there was this algorithm that was controlling what was showing up in our feeds. And then everyone started to try and figure out like, what did Facebook want? So once algorithms that determine what gets seen in the feed come into play, that actually changes how people behave as a result because they're trying to play by the rules of this game. So if you notice that outrage gets more clicks and attention, and then the algorithm favors and and, uh, promotes things that get more engagement, which in, in general things that are outrageous or controversial will, then the algorithm is somewhat dictating and changing your behavior to mirror that so that you will become more outrageous and more controversial so that you get more attention. And it's, it's partly, I think, uh, on some people's part, it's, it's conscious, right? They want to be more well-known. They want to be famous. They want to get out there. They, they can get you know, book deals or TV or whatever by doing whatever it is that they, they do to get this attention. Um, but on the other hand, I think it's also a little subversive because it plays to aspects of our brain that have developed over you know, the, the course of human history dating back to our, our earliest ancestors uh, as hunter-gatherers, like the way that our brain receives information looking for threats and looking to our communities for safety and all those sort of things, they're all present in how these social networks essentially take advantage of those same triggers. So I don't fully blame people for it, although I do think that there are some bad actors out there, and there's, I think there's a lot of, obviously, we've seen automation and bots and things like that that are kind of um, you know kind of peeing in the pool to use a a, I can't think of a better term for it but they're just kind of polluting the water Mm -hmm. Um, so it's kind of on the people but I think it's it's as much that the problem and I guess you know your original question is how do we fix this there's so many different things we have to look at I mean on the one hand we need to encourage a new way for all of us to adopt in how we think about how we interact on these channels, which is a, a massive endeavor. How do you encourage people to be civil, to be uh, empathetic, to be connected, to, be, to see the other person as a human? How do we do that? I mean, that's a massive thing. But then without taking um, the system in, into uh, consideration and thinking about how we have to change that, then all of those personal... Um, you know, endeavors are going to fail, no matter how kind or empathetic you choose to be. If you put something out there, and that's not what gets the attention. And the the thing that is outrageous gets attention. We're just never going to overcome this. So I think we just we have a crisis of values on the system itself in both personal values, and in what the system itself values.
2: Do you think that the values of let's just use influencers as like a broad term at this point um do you feel like the values of of most influencers social media influencers um from like a marketing perspective hold true to their personal values as like a human being
1: i mean i i would it would be disingenuous of me to paint influencers as a group with a broad brush i mean it's it's almost you know it's almost like talking about millennials as as a homogenous group i i think there's influencers who have gained their influence by way of writing thoughtful content, putting things out there that are intended to be valuable, and you know they have in turn developed an audience. That happens, mm-hmm. uh, and then there's people that do it by being louder and more present, and um, you know more controversial or whatever it is that they do to to get. You know, you take someone like Logan Paul and you compare that against someone like Simon Sinek, and it, there's just you can't even. There's not even a straight line to correlate these two people, but they're both. You know influencers in in a way. Now, if we're talking about like you know Instagram fitness models, or we're talking about like you know the leadership accounts that are you know polluting Instagram or anything like that, then you know I, I could probably find some characteristics that draws them all together. But as far as like does it mesh with their personal values? I guess it would. You'd have to first understand like what is what is the mission that this person like what is their purpose, right? Mm-hmm. If their purpose. Is that they want to make money and work for themselves, and they don't want to have a boss, and you know they just want safety and security for their themselves and their family. You know they they have a different set of inherent constraints around what that would be. But if you're not in it for the money, if you're in it because you want to say change the world, you know, let's say that you know you are really hoping to draw attention to a world problem like climate change. You look at that Greta Th- uh, Thunberg or whatever, like she's not out for the money, right? Like she's trying to save our planet from imminent demise. Um, and, and I think like if you, I guess you just look at the different archetypes of influencers that might be out there, there's going to be the ones that are going to not really have any values outside of personal gain. And then there's going to be the influencers who are in it for another reason. And the way that they're going to go about building their influence and their audience is going to be very different. Um, So I don't know if that answers the question because I don't know if there's a single way to answer.
2: Yeah, there's not. There's not. I mean, I think it just comes down to like really good storytelling. So like, I'd love to hear a little bit more about like your, your ideas behind, you know, the, I guess the. The value that you need to bring when it comes to a good story or the things that you need to do or say, et cetera? Like, what what is storytelling to you? I mean, you've been a marketer for, you know, I'd say a large portion of your adult life. So, what what does storytelling mean to you?
1: For me, I see story as the vehicle to tell an otherwise unengaging idea. You know, stories are just a, a, a delivery mechanism for ideas. So when you frame something in a narrative, the human brain is really well-suited to consume that content. It's why movies are popular. It's why televisions are pop- television shows are popular. It's why radio programs, we naturally gravitate towards story. It's part of our human evolution of the way that we transferred information. And we more likely remember things that are told in the form of a narrative, especially when that narrative contains some sort of an emotion uh, mm-hmm. along the way. So the more you can include an emotional response to a set of information told in a narrative that has a, you know, kind of um, a timeless flow to it. You know, we've, I was, I went to school for film and media arts in my undergrad, and I wanted to go there for screenwriting. So I wrote screenplays and I wrote um, plays for the stage. And I became completely obsessed with stories because I loved the people that were in it. For me, everything has kind of always come down to people. And I just, I always wanted to show the inner life of what was going on in a character through mm-hmm. their looks, through camera work, through, you know, subtle offhanded comments, through internal dialogue. All of those things, I just, I always found very engaging. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I, you know, a pr- when I came to become a marketer, when I took these skills into marketing, you know, really what I just thought about was how do I get people to understand the message? And what I've always found is that if I use metaphors, if I use stories, these are ways that people are going to better understand what I'm talking about versus if I just say like a a piece of data or a a sentence, like a statistic or something like that. They might remember a few statistics here or there, but, you know, statistics change. They're, They're open to interpretation. It's all about how you gather the data, integrity, et cetera. But a story is a way that you can always get a point across provided it 's a good story uh, that people are going to remember you know we started out this episode just talking about comic books you know and how much these ideas resonated with us well why they didn 't resonate with us because you know they were um, you know a, a series of bullet points of information and you could take any of these comic books or any of these movies and you could break them into you know a bulleted outline, but it wouldn't be particularly interesting. But as we watch the narrative flow of that information unflow, uh, unfold, we all of a sudden have a connection to it. We can see ourselves in it, but we can't see ourselves in math and in data in the same way that we can, when there's a, a person who's embodying that experience.
2: Yeah. Well, you, I mean, you talk about people, and I kind of want to change the conversation a little bit about leadership because, you know, when you're going into the world of social media, um, you as the potential leader of an organization is to some degree the gold standard and we've seen a lot of um, organizations and people in the news most recently um, that the leaders aren't necessarily holding true to their values and to their stories and et cetera et cetera not necessarily from a standpoint of social media but you know doing after just doing some research on your ideologies you talk heavily about leadership. And so I, I kind of just want to talk more about the bridge between like that storytelling, the social media aspect, the values into the the world of just like leadership and growth. Because at the end of the day, there's two thoughts. You could be a thought leader and then you could be a leader of an organization.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so I love talking about leadership. I'm actually in the process of writing a book. It's been a very long process, but I'm writing a book called The Lovable Leader. And it's about what I believe is just an evolution of leadership philosophy whereby we bring in the concept of love and respect and connection into an organization. Um, So I'm a huge fan of talking about it. I also love talking about thought leadership specifically because I think that's another example of a good idea that's been buzzword and bastardized. by way of people wanting to become thought leaders in the same way people want to become influencers. I think both of those things, if you are a thought leader, it's not a thing that you say about yourself. It's something that people say about you and and you may never even find out that people say that about you, but that you have the ability to think original thoughts that influence the way people think. Um, so like thought leader, we can talk about that all day, but as far as just becoming a leader, um, you know, bridge the gap between the conversation we were just having about storytelling and leadership. I'll say this, that I don't think, um, I think a fundamental um, component of being a great leader is being able to tell a good story. And that doesn't mean you have to be able to get up on stage and, you know, spin a tale of, of conflict. And, you know, but what it does mean is that when you're talking with somebody on your team, you have to be able to help them see what, their future looks like and what your aligned future looks like because leadership is about nothing more than people willing to follow you and go with you and and basically be willing to be under your care and guidance that's that's all leadership is it doesn't have to be for you know uh, uh, positive outcomes it could be for nefarious outcomes but Uh, it's, it's an amoral framework, but leadership is just the ability to get someone to follow you. So in doing that, one of the most effective ways you can do that is by helping people see how the journey that you're trying to take them on aligns with the journey that they want to go on themselves, which is an element of storytelling. You have to weave together two individual narratives because everyone in their head has this idea of where they want to go with their life, where they want to go with their career, who they are as a human being. Their identity is deeply wrapped up in the concept of what their future will unfold to look like. And as a leader, you have to be able to recognize the story that that person is telling themselves about themselves to be able to interweave it with the story of where you see your organization going or the project or initiative that you're doing you have to make sure that you can connect those two because if there's not congruence between what that person wants and what you want, you're never gonna be able to lead them because you're moving in fundamentally opposite directions. So you have to be able to sort of join the two stories together into a single narrative. So for that reason, I think at a conceptual level, all leaders have to be great storytellers. Now how that unfolds in real life and what it looks like in practice, there are gonna be leaders who are you know, potentially more, Uh, introverted or maybe they're more monotone or any other sort of things that you wouldn't naturally think of being like a compelling storyteller, but it's about the underlying idea wrapped up in a narrative of where we are going together.
2: Yeah. You have these, um, I guess these 10 commandments, so to speak, uh, that you talk about when it comes to the lovable, the 10 commandments of a lovable leadership and you know obviously i'm not going to expect you to revert all of them back to us but i kind of just want to hear your your philosophy on why you decided to actually go through and and create that
1: yeah the so the the 10 commandments of lovable leadership came out of as i'm writing the book i realized that um i kind of wanted to have some sort of a shorthand or um I guess an easy frame, I'm a big fan of frameworks and like easy to remember stuff, right? So 10 commandments seem like, well, that's a pretty uh, long running, universal, simple listicle type system goes, goes way back. So let's just do the 10 commandments of lovable leadership. So uh, it's actually changed. Uh, some of the commandments have changed since the original version of it. But the idea behind it is I wanted to kind of say, look, if, if you remember nothing else from my book, if you remember nothing else from this presentation or whatever, remember these 10 things and you'll be good. And honestly, even if you don't remember all 10, just remember a handful of them and you'll be in a better place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I, um, I have a lot of different, I mean, obviously there's 10 of them in there. Um, I can go over a couple of them if you want. Um, Happy sure. for all ten, but um, you know I want to I want to be uh, sensitive to our ability to talk about all sorts of topics. But there's one in there that I think is is probably the single most important commandment, and it's the fifth commandment, and it's sit on the same side of the table. So sit on the same side of the table is a um, it's a it's a it's a framework. It's like a mental model for how to essentially address any situation, and if you consider just for a moment, visualize yourself sitting across a table from someone who you have to give feedback to. Maybe it's negative feedback. Uh, maybe it's performance review. And, and by the way, I'm not saying literally sit next to somebody. I'm just, it's a model of, of how you approach it. If you're sitting across from them, you're in an adversarial stance, right? You are both facing opposite one another. You are looking in opposite directions. You are confronting them, they are confronting you you're kind of clashing in the middle, right? So the performance review, if you're sitting on opposite sides of the table, it means you have different viewpoints about things. Whereas if you sit on the same side of the table, now imagine you're sitting next to this person and you're both looking in the same direction. You can talk about where we are going together. So it's a model of being able to have a conversation where instead of saying, say I was giving you a performance review and um, let's say that... um, I don't know, let's say it was something sales related, right? And I wanted you to sell more and you you didn't hit your sales number. If I'm sitting on the opposite side of the table from you, I'm like, John, you know, I really expected a lot more from you. Um, We had talked about sales goals and you didn't hit them. And I'd like to know why, right? So it's, Mm -hmm it's confrontational where if I sit on the same side of the table, you metaphorically, I would say, John, you know, um, it looks like this past month, like the whole company is down a little bit on our sales numbers. I want to know how I can support you so I, so that you are able to have what it is that you need so that next month you're able to not only meet your numbers, but exceed them. Like, how can I help? What can I do to empower you so that you can get what you need? Right? Yeah. So on the one hand, I'm, I'm pointing at you. I'm talking maybe across to you or down to you. Whereas if we're on the same side, I'm with you. We're in the trenches together. Leadership is not something where you're, you know, sitting at the you know the head and cracking the whip. It's something where you're in there with your team and you're talking about where we're going together. Like you have to lead from the inside.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's incredibly powerful. Um, you know, from from a leadership, do you think this was something, from a leadership standpoint, do you think that this was, born within you do you think you've developed this over time um you know how how was it relatively difficult to to be a a leader for you from from the beginning of your career
1: um i wish that i could tell a story of how the call to leadership was difficult for me Mm -hmm. Um, and and i don't want to i don't also want to paint the picture that i'm the most incredible leader out there I think that I am, I am somebody who is as in development as a leader as anybody else, and I am just working my ass off to be the best I can. Now, what I will say is that I feel that my life conditions presented me with a number of advantages to developing this framework and to becoming this person. So I'll just list off a few of them. So for one, I have to acknowledge the fact that I was born as a white male in a society that predominantly favors white males, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I have an easier time and I know this. So acknowledging the privilege that I have is one big step. So being able to be free to explore different methods and styles of leadership is something that I had the ability to do where other people may not. So that's the first thing. Second thing, my father was um, you know, blue collar, grinded out. He was a funeral director. And early in my life, he instilled in me this idea that if I found something that I love to do, that I would never work a day in my life, he was mm-hmm. very clear about that, and I believe Confucius first said something along those lines <laughs>
2: uh,
1: but but he basically was like, you know every day I wake up at five a m and I spend all day comforting widows and you know burying dead people, like don 't waste your life on something that you don 't enjoy like you know i 'm happy with my lot in life i 'm able to provide for my family, et etc, but like you should try your hardest to find something that just feeds your soul, so because of that. I was a really terrible employee. I'm still a terrible employee, which is why I don't ever intend to work for anybody. Um, and I have this real issue with authority. And part of the issue is that every time I did have a boss, all I could do was recognize everything that they were doing wrong, how they were demotivating me, how they were dealing with conflict inappropriately. So my entire leadership philosophy for lack of a, a better influence, I would say is born out of not wanting to be those bad bosses. I, I'd say that if you were to boil down what I'm trying to do in my leadership trainings and in my leadership um, development trainings and curriculum is that I'm trying to build a company, build the, the the training program to build leaders that could build a company that I could actually work for, which is a super tall order. And what it comes down to is I'm really looking at like what are the elements of human conversation communication connection relationships that allow these these relationships to flourish and what are the things that we naturally like and dislike about the state of work so there was a study somewhere uh, i can't remember when it was done but it found that essentially the number one defining characteristic that leads to job satisfaction or dissatisfaction is control whether people felt that they had control in their work. So that doesn't, it's not pay. It's not even you know personal development. It's that, did they have the ability to own the work that they're doing? So um, that's been a huge thing for me because as an only child, one, I love all of the attention. Two, I was brought up <laughs> in the 80s when everybody was told that they're special and unique and they could do anything if they set their minds to it. So I have all of these factors that contribute to me believing you know, if you're going to build a work environment, you should build one in which people feel appreciated and acknowledged where they feel like they have autonomy in their role that when things don't go right, that they are uh, handled in such a way where they're not made to feel like an absolute piece of garbage, where they're seen as a human being, and they feel that they have the support that they need to grow into who that they're capable of being. And I think that it stems from this idea that I believe in people. I really do for better or for worse, no matter how much horrible stuff goes on in the world, I tend to just believe in people. I think that at, at our core, we're good. We, we see in each other that we only have so much time here and that's a common human experience that we only have so much time here. We all go through loss. We all go through, hopefully all go through love. We have all of these common human experiences and when we can see each other on that level, when we can wipe away all the other garbage that's getting in the way of us being able to experience those emotions, we're all fundamentally good and we want to help one another live a good, safe, secure, and loving life. But then things don't happen. The system doesn't support it. We have uh, incentives in the wrong places. Uh, We have punishments in the wrong places. We have people in power uh, in various institutions and in governments that, you know, don't necessarily want to change the status quo that that uh, benefits a a small number at the expense of the many and then that stress causes all of these social bonds to break down and that's ultimately if you look at the work that I'm trying to do is I'm in some small part trying to help fix these things on an individual basis and whenever I get the opportunity in a group basis to you know spread this message of love and connection and uh, rehumanization, so that we can start to fix all of these broken parts of our system and, and move towards a better world.
2: I think a large part, part of it as we wind down the conversation is like self-awareness. You talked very briefly about how you you know that you're a bad employee, but you know, whether that's true or not, it, it's more entirely up to to you to decide that. But being self-aware and acknowledging that you believe that you have a lot of weaknesses in a particular area shows a lot of growth and strength in, in, in others. Um, How important to other people that are listening that may not be as self-aware, like how can you overcome that? How can you acknowledge that you have these flaws and and what can you, what are some things that you could do in order to fix that?
1: It's that is such an amazing question because it gets at such a, a deep issue of really it's it comes down to like honesty and vulnerability so yeah. it's the willingness to be wrong it's the willingness to say i'm not perfect and i can get better and i think again we have a lot of incentives out there for everyone to pretend that everything is fine and to pretend that you know they're doing better than they are and all of these things and i think when we are free of the need to be perfect at everything, or even to just be good at things that maybe we're just not, you know, I, I think that that honesty with yourself is crucial. And and I want to just quick double back to something you said, you said, you know, I may be the best, em- I may not be the best employee, or I may just think that, and I would actually, I, I don't know if I would say I would argue it, but I I would suggest that those two are probably the same thing right? Because if I don't believe that I'm a good employee, then I will naturally act in such a way where I will make that manifest, you know, I will make sure that the identity, the story that I've told myself about who I am, that I'm an entrepreneur, that I can't work for another person, I will make sure that that comes true, whether that is consciously or subconsciously, I have a narrative about who I am. And I think the more that we can examine our own narrative and we can break it down and we can open it up to external uh, scrutiny. I'm a big proponent of, of everyone having a therapist. Um, All of those and, and, you know, breaking down the stigma of mental health. I think that the more we can do that, the more we can be honest with ourselves and we can say, here's who I am. And, and then we could build in as much a society and a, you know, if we even just keep it to business, a business culture in which, people are allowed to be who they are and we are empathetic with them and we work with them in a collaborative way to fulfill again sort of a common and aligned uh story then i think that we're building a better world where people can start to feel less shame about who they actually are and, and instead grow into and learn to love the person that they actually are. And that's gonna change time and time again. Like the person I am today is not the person I was in my early 20s, thank God. Cause I did a bunch of dumb stuff in my early 20s, said a bunch of dumb things. And I look back on a lot of those things with regret and shame, but I then also am trying my best to go back and rectify those, those wrongs and just be the better person. And we're always growing into that. And I think I've been very lucky to have an environment where I can do those things. Um, And I think we just need to build a better world in which everyone can do those things.
2: Absolutely. And beautifully, beautifully said. Um, Jeff, as we're winding down this conversation, I'd like to just let everybody know where they can find more about you, your story. I know you have a lot of things that uh, you mentioned a book. uh, You mentioned a couple of other things. You hinted at a couple of other things as well. Um, But the conversations that we had was extremely deep um, extremely raw and, 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 a great conversation. So I'm greatly appreciated of, of you and your time.
1: Thanks, man. I really appreciate you bringing me on. Um, I guess if there's, uh, talking about the different thing, I'm doing a lot of different things right now, but, um, the number one place that people can learn more about me and they can, you know, keep up with what I'm doing. I have like a very, um, it's a very customizable email list subscription. Like you can you can just say, I just want to get your blog post or I want to find out where you're speaking or I want to find out new products and services. So uh, on my website, jeffgibber.com uh, slash subscribe, that's where people can get on my email list and they can also go to the blog and read all the different thoughts I've had out there. Um, I've been blogging a lot less recently, but I'm planning to get back into it. I just have a... A lot of different things I'm working on. Uh, I also host a uh, podcast called Shareable, uh, which I've been running now for three odd years or so. Uh, typically, it's been a show about the impact of people and technology on our lives and careers, but I've since expanded it and kind of opened it up to talk about more stuff uh, since uh, since I left my agency. Uh, I'm starting a new podcast called Rogue, which is a podcast, uh, if you're familiar with the X-Men character Rogue, she can steal people's abilities through touch, and mine, it, my podcast is going to be a podcast where uh, I can learn to harness other people's super abilities through conversation, and then I make that available to my audience. It's, um, it's a pretty exciting endeavor I have going, and then Uh, Two other quick things, I have the Superhero Institute, which is the name of my company that does training and development, consulting, and speaking, and that is at superheroinstitute.org. It's currently a coming soon page, but if you get on the list, you'll find out when it uh, launches, and that's going to be an online platform where I'm going to be uh, posting a ton of training and development resources. It's going to be sort of an all-you-can-eat buffet of leadership, sales, marketing, uh, company culture, Um, productivity, et cetera. So it's just how to level up as a human being and unleash your potential through uh, simple frameworks and tools. And then the final thing is I just released an online dating course because uh, I quickly realized uh, after getting divorced in 2013 that online dating is just like online marketing. And when I discovered that, I met my wife three months later and uh, we got married by a unicorn uh, in September of 2018. So yeah, man, those are all the things I'm working on. And for that, uh, it's just hitchfilly.com. Uh, hitch like the Will Smith movie com, And there's a free guide that people can download. And then from there, there's a, a course that they can upgrade to. So a lot of cool stuff I'm working on pretty excited about all of it. And I'm hoping to just conquer the world in the most benevolent dictator type way.
2: Uh, and we're going to do our best to help support you as much as we can. All the links will be in the show notes. Uh, Jeff, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it.
0: You've been listening to Blind Entrepreneurship brought to you by Penji. Our guest this week was Jeff Gibbard. To learn more about Jeff, you could head over to his website, which is www. Actually, I don't know why I said that, but it's jeffgibbard.com. Uh, spelled exactly how you think it is Jeff, J E F F Gibbard, G I B B A R D.com. And to learn more about us, uh, learn more about Penji, learn more about the podcast and why we do what we do, head over to Penji.co to learn more about our company uh, and TVE Show and drop a comment, tveshow.com to drop a comment on this week's episode. It would mean a lot if you could share this episode with a friend. It is the only way that we can cure blindness in business. Go out there and execute your vision, everybody. Have a great rest of your day.